Today's sponsor is Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash recode and using the promo code recode. Terms and conditions apply. We'd also like to thank Qualcomm for making today's show possible. First, they connected the phone to the internet. Now they're connecting the internet to everything else. Qualcomm, they're the restless inventors bringing the future forward faster. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the inspiration for Pokemon's Charmander, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can subscribe to Recode Decode at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode, and while you're there, leave us a review. Today in the red chair is John Hankey, the CEO of Niantic, which is best known as the company behind the hit mobile game Pokemon Go. He previously helped create Google Earth and Google Maps before founding Niantic inside of Google. It created apps like Field Trip and Ingress, but now it's an independent company. We're going to talk about what the change has meant and much more. John, welcome to the show. Thanks. Happy to be here. And here to interview John with me is Recode's senior editor for mobile, Ina Freed, who is also a crazy Pokemon fan. Hey, Ina. Hey, sorry. I was just chasing a Pidgey. Here now. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. <laughs> anyway, we're going to talk a lot about Pokemon Go, but I think what's interesting to me is your background. So I want to start so people understand where you came from, John. And I, we've known each other for a long, long time when you were back at Google during doing maps and Google Earth. So why don't you give us a little bit of your background? Because it does point to where you were going here with this. Yeah, I started working on mapping stuff even before Google. Um, back around 2000, we started a company called Keyhole. Keyhole, that's right. Which made the Keyhole Earth Viewer, mm-hmm. uh, which was acquired by Google in 2004. And then we came in and turned that into Google Earth and launched Google Maps and worked on local search and all the sort of related things. There. I'm going to bring you back the Keyhole. Talk about that company because I was very aware of it. And in fact, I was going to write about it and uh, Megan Smith got involved in it who I had kids with and stuff uh-huh. so she's like oh you can't write about that but I was always fascinated by the idea of keyholes looking through at the earth it was way before anybody else thought about those things yes pretty early on we started the company with some folks who came out of silicon graphics where they had worked on high-end visualization of satellite imagery for flight simulators and you know, really expensive government stuff but it was right around the time when 3d was coming out of SGI in the domain of supercomputers to the consumer space. So companies like 3D FX and NVIDIA, like the early consumer Mm -hmm. 3D stuff was coming out, which meant you could do that type of visualization, the thing that you see in Google Maps and Google Earth today. Uh, Back then, it was just then becoming possible on normal PCs that people could own. And we had the idea to build this like kind of super version of MapQuest. So why Maps for you? MapQuest was pretty awful. It was sort of kind of looked like hand-drawn children's drawings, if I recall. It was kind of... It's early. Yeah. Um, I love maps. I, you know, I grew up in a small town reading National Geographic and really pulling the maps out. And I just, I love maps. I like travel. I kind of, this whole idea of virtual travel. So it was a dream kind of date for me to connect with the other founders and start it up. It was kind of a mix between a video game and, you know, something that was useful. So it had that fun factor of, you know, flying in and it's kind of jaw dropping as you zoom in. But you could use it to do practical stuff, like look for the hotel you want to stay in if you're going you know on vacation or exploring you know a hike that you want to take and you can see it in 3d so there's utility too but the flyby was the big thing everybody used it on television i remember they just started using it pretty quickly they did yeah that was the thing that um i think probably ultimately brought us the attention of google the television networks picked it up and 
they've been able to do kind of similar things with a lot of pre-production and a lot of work, but with Keyhole, they could just sort of throw it up and somebody could drive it. Um, there's a guy at CNN named Miles O'Brien who became, I think, sort of mildly addicted to it. So yeah. he sort of worked it into every single so broadcast. Why sell? Why sell the company? What was the, inst- well, you know, I, the circumstances around that? Uh, we had gone through, if you remember, like the time frame from 2000 to 2004, that was bad. 9-11 happened, you know, the economy uh, tanked, venture capital kind of deserted the valley. And uh, we had lived through this pretty tough time and made it through the other side and the company was turning profitable. We actually had in 2004, three term sheets from VCs to do our Series B and keep growing it. And that's how much like did a, you raise? Not a lot, you know, in the order of uh six or seven million yeah everybody was six or seven million around that yeah, yeah and so lot. we had a series b that would be 10 million which seemed like you know, a huge amount of capital at the time uh and kind of out of the blue google called us up we were actually located just a few blocks away and megan was the first person that I, I talked to over there and she said well we're really interested in what you're doing why don't you come by and talk to us and two meetings later they made an offer to, to buy us and uh we did debate it because Google was a big mystery then. This mm-hmm. was pre-IPO Google, and we heard rumors of like strange things happening there, like yeah. getting massages and like yeah. lavish buffets of food. And yeah, we didn't really true. know. If, we didn't know if it was going to last. You haven't it, gotten to the strange things yeah, yet, but well, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> we didn't know if it was a bubble or if it was real. But um, in the course of talking to them, they actually showed us their financials, uh, which were jaw dropping. I mean, I you know I'd never seen a private company doing so well. And Larry and Sergey and Eric convinced us that they were very, very um, passionate about this idea of maps being a way to find information and being this really important thing for Google. So, What was the sale number? What did you sell it for? Oh, I don't I think it's ever been made public, but it was low tens of millions. Right. Yeah. But Google stock, too. And Google stock. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was good. We, we did well, and Google took care of us over the years. Yeah. And obviously, you know, Niantic was built, you know, the gaming company around maps, but you've been into games a lot longer than that. You wrote games for computers using cassette tapes. We're taking you back to when you were a kid. I, I did. Actually, games were the thing that got me into computers. Uh, seventh grade, math class, TRS-80, 8-bit. Trash-80. You know. Yeah, way back. Uh, but to me, it was this magical thing that you could put commands into and it would do stuff. You could actually make things just by thinking it and typing into the computer. And yeah, there were cassette tapes, which would lose your program after, you know, at very inopportune times. And I did that and then kind of came back to technology uh, a few years later and uh, helped to start a company that made one of the early MMOs. Um, multiplayer gaming. Mm-hmm. One of the first on. internet massively multiplayer online 3D games. And that has a lot to do with where we ended up with Ingress and uh, Pokemon Go. Well, and I'm curious, how did you decide to put a game on top of mapping? Because that, that was pretty unusual. I mean, obviously, you had the passion in gaming and you had the business of maps. I mean, for me, it was this linear thing where I had I'd worked on one of these early MMOs, massively multiplayer, people playing together, competing, collaborating. And then I worked on maps. And Ingress, which was the precursor to Pokemon Go, was really just one plus the other. It was an MMO plus Geo Maps. You put it together and Ingress comes out. And I loved both of those things. And uh, I was also, I don't know, I was into this idea of games outside, you know. Um, as much as I enjoyed making games, I also didn't really like that feeling that you get after you've been sitting around playing a game and for two or three hours. Chips, it yeah. feels exactly like you just ate a whole bag of potato chips. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, I was kind of hoping that you could combine it with uh, a walking type of experience right. that would leave you feeling kind of Because you were showing people refreshed. where to go at, at Google Maps. Before we get to that, 
you were working on maps for how long there? You did all kinds of things, like you did uh, Google View, all kinds of things to maps. What happened in that period in the mapping area? Because that's sort of been the most one of the most important things for Google is the mapping. Along Microsoft also has been very active in the area, but it's only really the two of you. Yeah, it was a fun time. I mean, we came in in 2004. Uh, we launched Google Maps. We launched Google Earth, and then. Uh, I did that for six, almost seven years at Google. And so what were the big challenges of that? Many. I mean, you know, MapQuest was what had existed before. So with Google Earth and with Google Maps, we're trying to do a number of things. Uh, one is cover the world with imagery. So you can actually see what places look like. You can see what, you know, Yosemite or, you know, any place in the world look like the far corners of Africa. So there were technical challenges and logistical and business challenges just to collecting all of that overhead imagery. We worked with satellite partners. We ultimately put together our own fleet of aircraft internally to uh, take very, very high-resolution images. Then went into 3D construction of the actual uh, building geometry. So now mm -hmm. whenever you – Apple has the same capability now. If you tilt and look at San Francisco, New York, you actually see all the structures. So going from you know Earth view down to the street-level view, street view was another project where – you know, there were hundreds. It was a college project, wasn't it? Started at Stanford, mm -hmm. uh, and then Google took it up, and Sebastian Thrun and Luke Vincent and others headed up that program and uh, scaled it up around the world. You may not remember, but you once showed me elephants in mm -hmm. Africa. Mm -hmm. showing, the, we did that with National Geographic. Right, because mm -hmm. you were showing how they were getting their ivory, uh, how they were being poached. Mm -hmm. But one of the interesting things is there was anecdotal discussion of how it was happening and then google maps showed how it actually was happening which was in because you could see the pathways and where they were the, mm -hmm. the poachers and then the same thing with uh, trash on the ocean you also showed me there was these big um i'll never forget it it was these big bunches of plastic bottles uh-huh Right, that had right. been created like and you were actually and then another one was where deforestation actually happened versus where they thought it happened it was kind of an interesting like you were starting to pe people to really see the world versus how they thought it was which was interesting yeah for scientists too it was this thing where <clears throat> to have access to overhead imagery it was an expensive and difficult and technically challenging process so a lot of scientists who had data that they wanted to uh, compared to satellite imagery, they didn't really have the technical or financial means to do that. So when Google Earth became widely available for basically free with this high-resolution imagery of the whole world, all of a sudden, all these scientists who had ideas and of ways to visualize data and interact with it, they had this really awesome free tool. So it ended up being a consumer thing, but was used for you know very interesting purposes by many scientists. I'm excited to talk Pokemon in a second, but on, on the mapping subject, I'm curious how you think drones are going to change the mapping business, because obviously you're going to have this other layer coming in of consumer gathered data from all these devices. Yeah, it does get down to that um, panopticon kind of, you know, you have these multitudes of perspectives being synthesized into this global street level representation of the world that would be, you know, updated pretty regularly. So it's kind of an extrapolation forward of the kinds of things we did. But whenever you have if you get down to the level of having drones sort of collect that at interior of shopping malls or at the very close street level, uh, the fidelity of that is going to be, I think, amazing if it happens. Obviously, there are lots of regulatory and other things that would have to be overcome, but technically you could do it. And I guess that means at some point probably it will be done. So let's talk about how you got, you were at Google doing these maps. What caused you to do this? I mean, I know it happens to a lot of Google executives. They want to do other things. You, you're an entrepreneur. You're in the giant Google, and it had grown enormously in the time you were there to a relatively small company to one that was sort of this giant. What got you to do this within Google first and then moving it out? 
Well, you hit on it. I mean, uh, some of it was personal. I had been in this job for seven years. We came in as a 30-person startup, and at the end of it, we were thousands of people in this massive organization, and Google itself had matured, and I was, uh, you know, as a middle manager. I was between, you know, Larry and Sergey and Eric in the uppermost tier of Google and all the employees doing the work, and I kind of wanted to go back and be closer to building something, you know, and to go back to that creative fulfillment that I found as a kid, just typing away on, you know, personal computer making programs, idea of actually making something new. And um, this idea had been kind of germinating of, you know, building a, a game on top of maps that could lead you around outside and that would combine with walking and exploring and exercising. I was kind of led in that direction by every day struggling with my oldest son who only just went away to college, but he was, you know, a few years younger than, and, you know, the screen time and you know, right. games being so compelling. And I knew that because games were the things that got me into programming and I didn't want to take that away from him, but I also wanted him to do stuff outside and right. it sort of led me to think, well, maybe you could combine games with outdoor play and exploration. Why keep it in Google? Well, did they beg you? I think I'm guessing they begged you to keep it within Google. Well, I had planned just you know, I created a my resignation letter and sent it to Eric and, and Larry and just explained that it was time for me to go do something new. And the company is trying to create opportunities for ideas to be explored within the company. And so they created this kind of special thing so that we could basically run like a startup but be inside of Google. It was very, very nice and supportive of Google to do that. And was a fantastic platform for us to um, try out some of these ideas. It gave us access to technology and people and so it's a great way to get started. And we mm-hmm. did Field Trip and Ingress, both within Google. And Ingress is kind of, for those who haven't heard of it, you know, it's it, while it's the core of kind of what became Pokemon Go, it's kind of a nerdier game. It was not a mass hit. What, what do you think was it about Ingress that made it kind of a cult thing versus and Pokemon Go? And Field Trip, Go? too. Field Trip was very learny, I remember. It was. I think I went to your thing. It was like edgemutainment kind of thing. <laughs> it, yeah, it was about... Well, it is about. It's still around. And I, you know, I love the app. It tells you about history and art and yeah. architecture and things like that around you. Ingress was a sci-fi game. It was our first cut at doing a location, real-world type of game. Uh, we deliberately said, you know, we're not going to try to create something that's like super mass market. We wanted to create something that was more of a targeted at gamers because we felt like we could make something that as early adopters that they would appreciate and use even if it wasn't perfect, even if the technology wasn't perfect. So it was kind of a deliberate choice to really make a game for gamers. I was a gamer. I, you know, I didn't have a problem with that. And uh, it was, you know, the early exploration of what it would mean to build a game like this. We build it around data that we actually, some of which came from field trips. So historical markers and public art are mm-hmm. the places that are the key points of interest that you interact with in Ingress and in Pokemon Go. So mm-hmm. these things are all kind of built on one another. And Field was Trip a, was the first product, correct? Field Trip came out first, mm-hmm. and then Ingress. You showed it off at the Presidio, if I remember correct. I was showing some markers there. Maybe. And, yeah, I think I went. And the story of how it went from being, or it didn't go from being Ingress, but how you went as a company from Ingress to Pokemon Go is kind of interesting. I mean, I assume you were looking for a way to take it mass market, but Pokemon started out as an April Fool's joke, right? It did. So Ingress was out, and uh, it's, Ingress is about to hit its four-year anniversary. It's still growing. It's doing great. We were looking for the next project. Our goal um, has always been to create this uh, platform for real-world games and have lots of stuff get built on top of it. So we were thinking about, well, what's next? What's going to introduce a wider set of people to this kind of technology? And Pokemon was something that we were talking about internally. It was. It's obviously you know hugely beloved and popular but why Pokemon it's like saying the Brady Bunch you know what I mean it's sort of like a thing that was popular when I was young which was a very long time ago but why Pokemon of all things of all the different 
retro kind of things. Well, it's uh, it's uniquely well suited to the kind of game that we're doing. If you think about the lore of Pokemon, it's about the trainer, and this is depicted in the animation series and in the video. The trainer mm-hmm. goes out into the woods, goes out into the world, and searches for Pokemon. So it really is a it's an augmented reality game created originally as a video game mm-hmm. but that that fiction translates perfectly into the kind of augmented reality real world game that we do where through your device your phone today maybe you'll be some kind of glasses in the future you're seeing this you know fantastical world overlaid on the real one uh, and you see the pokemon and you can capture them so it's really exactly what's depicted in the story of pokemon so we felt like it was a perfect match and around the same time uh, one of the engineers in the uh, on the maps team, Tatsu Nomura, uh, who was on stage with me at Apple last week, had done an April Fool's joke with the Pokemon company to uh, mash up Pokemon on top of Google Maps, mm-hmm. and that was we were like, wow, okay, we're one step away from these guys. We can go, we can go talk to the Pokemon company and sort of pitch them this idea, and we did, and they liked it, and uh, we started working on the project. All right, we're going to get more into that when we get back. We're here with John Hankey, who is the CEO of Niantic which also is known for its game, Pokemon Go. Today's show is sponsored by Casper, which has made a perfect mattress and sells it directly to consumers to save you money. The Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It combines springy latex and supportive memory foams to create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. Shipping to both the U.S. and Canada is completely free, and there's a 100-day risk-free trial and return policy. If you don't love your Casper mattress, they'll pick it up and refund everything. These mattresses are made in America. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com recode and using the promo code recode. Stop paying for the mattress industry's inflated prices. Go to casper.com recode and use the promo code recode. Terms and conditions apply. Today's show is also sponsored by Ring.com. There's a home burglary every 13 seconds. Most happen in broad daylight with a burglar ringing your doorbell to make sure you're away before breaking in. Ring Video Doorbell has been proven to stop burglaries before they happen by allowing you to see and speak to anyone approaching your door, all using your smartphone. Now Ring is using their advanced motion detection technology to protect your entire property with the Ring of Security Kit. The kit includes a Ring video doorbell for the front door and a Ring stick-up cam, which is a wireless, weatherproof HD camera for keeping an eye on other parts of your property. Ring video doorbell and the stick-up cam both install in minutes. Working together, they provide 24-7 monitoring of your entire home, whether you're in their living room or a thousand miles away. For a limited time, my listeners get $50 off the Ring of Security kit. It's the lowest price anywhere. Go to ring.com slash recode now. Join the hundreds of thousands who protect their home with Ring, including myself. Go to ring.com slash recode for $50 off. That's ring.com slash recode. We're here with John Hankey, who is the CEO of Niantic. Niantic is the company that started within Google. John was involved in early efforts around Google mapping, and in fact, one of the key people there in bringing mapping to everybody. Then he became the CEO of Niantic, which created Pokemon Go, among other things. Joining me to interview John is Ina Freed, the senior editor who writes about mobile for Recode, who happens to be a Pokemon Go fanatic, and that's being nice. John was just talking about how he found Pokemon, but I want some more details about that. Like, how did you get in touch with him? Did you call? What was the reaction to the Pokemon people when you? Yeah, well, <clears throat> showed up. We uh, went through Tatsu, who was in touch with them, and uh, uh, one of the other members of my team, one of our designers, uh, Masa Kawashima, uh, reached out and uh, said. 
you know, Ingress we've been working on. It's out there. Check it out. We have this idea about bringing that together with Pokemon. And uh, they were interested enough to have us meet with them. As it turns out, Google and Pokemon companies share office space in Roppongi Hills in Tokyo mm-hmm. in the same building. So it was really, I flew over. We kind of went a few floors over down from the Google office to the Pokemon company office and showed it to them. And by the time we had that conversation, Mr. Ishihara, who's CEO of the Pokemon company, was already a level 11 Ingress player. Uh-huh. And his wow. wife was a even <laughs> higher level Ingress player than he was. And this is a man who's older than I am, right? Mm-hmm. So he's, but he's a gamer and uh, he just got it. He loved it. He was playing every day. And a number of other people in the Pokemon company uh, were, had been playing Ingress. So when we pitched Ingress Meets Pokemon as a project, they, you know, they had essentially already Said come yes. to the conclusion that, yeah, it would be a good it Were would be you a cool within thing. Google still or had you spun out? This was still in Google. Still in Google. So why mm-hmm. spin out? What was the thinking behind that? Well, we had set it up with the support of Larry as a three-year, a two-year project with a one-year extension. And so we essentially had hit the end of that, and we were at the point of deciding what to do next. In the beginning, you know, we had contemplated, well, at the end, it falls into some part of Google, or it could spin out. And um, it didn't really seem to make sense to fold it into other yeah, parts of the world. I don't know where it would go. Yeah. So Android would have been, you know, the kind of the obvious place because Android is mobile, but Android is also Android, and we're cross-platform and, you know, something different. So the spin-out option seemed interesting, and uh, we explored potential outside investors and through the Pokemon company, talked to them and Nintendo, and they were very interested in kind of supporting it and kind of being a closer partner through investing. So it's uh, just Google and Pokemon who's been... Well, since then, also Bluey, also as a small investment, uh, but the big investors are Pokemon and Nintendo. And then we have a couple of angels and Google, who came in. correct. And so, Google. And Google. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you spin it out and then talk about what happened next. Well, we it's the spin out didn't happen just like that. Unfortunately, it was about a nine month process. Ah, but once lawyers. we got all the paper, you know, all of the paperwork negotiated, um, that closed in October of last year. 2015. Uh-huh. And we landed... Uh, a good portion of the team came with us. Some people decided to stay at Google, then started hiring, building up the team a bit, uh, continuing to work on Ingress and Pokemon Go, and basically just kind of getting ready for launch. So uh, through you know the end of 2015 and into 2016, we're kind of putting the finishing touches on the product and then rolled it out in early July. So, I mean, the Pokemon Go comes out. You certainly, I imagine, had some inkling that people might like it, you know, the Pokemon Go, but you can't have imagined the types of downloads that you got in the initial interest? If I did, it was in some sort of dream state where I, you know, woke up and (laughs) um, it was, yeah, it was well beyond what we had planned in our, you know, our optimistic forecast. I think it would have been irrational and irresponsible of us to sort of predict that uh, it would get picked up the way that it did. It was just one of those things that it spread, you know, culturally, and uh, thankfully, Google was there to work with us on the server side. So I was going to say, if you'd known it was going to be that big, you probably would have had a couple more servers ready. It's possible. It's possible. Um, we had, you know, a good thing about starting with Ingress and moving to Pokemon Go is that we built all of the infrastructure once and we learned what we did wrong and we actually rebuilt all of it for Pokemon Go. So Ingress really very much enabled Pokemon Go in that sense. The And the technology was robust and we were able to scale it. Uh, Google did lend a hand. Um, I, you know, that first weekend when things were just crazy, I emailed Sundar and said, please, like, send reinforcements. We need help. And the cloud team came to the rescue and uh, we added a bunch of machines and they helped us. 
Uh, they said no one's using Google Plus. You can use those servers. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> <laughs> that was my joke. They were great. And yeah. so with their help, yeah, we were able to just absorb that load with only a few. There were some outages and it wasn't perfect. But um, but yeah, I mean, uh, we were able to ramp up and um, and let you know all these people come in and play Pokemon. What is your thought in terms of how the stickiness has been? I mean, the spend has to be pretty good. I mean, people spend more time and money in Pokemon Go than any other game? I don't know. Certainly per user, yeah, I think you know, it's... Comparatively, is there a game that compares? I mean, it does great in terms of retention and monetization. It's probably on a per user basis, doesn't monetize as high as some of the most aggressive games because we don't turn the knobs up on the in-app purchase, you know, in the way that some products do. We're trying to be more user-friendly, I guess, in that sense. But it monetizes as well. And, uh, yeah, it's good. Uh, I mean, it was a huge uh, mass of downloads that came, and uh, it's continuing to hold strong. And our, you know, the users are uh, playing, and we're rolling out, you know, new features. And when you say monetize as well, you're being humble. Uh, the estimates are 500 million so far. It should hit a billion before the end of the year. Is that something you could have envisioned? That was not in our plan. No. <laughs> <laughs> No, actually, the number of uh, you know monthly active users is how we model things in our plan. The peak that we hit in our plan four years out was a is a fraction of of where of where we are. Yeah. So how do you manage that? Because there's been a lot of games. Obviously, people. You, you first you got the wow, it's a phenomena. Then stupid people are getting into accidents because they're doing Pokemon Go. That whole spate of stories, like someone's in the middle of a highway doing it. And then you got a oh, is everyone? You it's blocked up. People can't get in it. And then it's People aren't using it as much. Talk about each of these moments, sort of the the crazy, like this is a crazy phenomenon. It seemed like it happened over a weekend for some yeah, reason. Yeah, I mean, it's been interesting to, for that all to play out in such a compressed period of time and under the sort of, uh, I mean, I've never seen a press interaction quite like this where everything has just been, you know, written about and from every possible angle. The way that it took off initially... Uh, it did happen extremely quickly. I was actually in Japan for an Ingress event. We had the biggest event we've ever had for Ingress, over 10,000 people coming together there. We had launched in the U.S. and Australia, and I took off for that. And then all these, you know, my wife sending me stories, you know, Jimmy Fallon's, you know, talking about Pokemon Go and mm-hmm. Colbert Report's talking about Pokemon Go. And, you know, it was just kind of permeated pop culture. Professional athletes were uh, tweeting pictures of themselves with Pokemon. So... That was kind of the unpredictable thing, the way it insinuated itself into pop culture mm-hmm. and uh, just kind of exploded the number of people who came into the pipeline. And uh, that, you know, we did have, you know, a couple of outages, you know, scaling up. We had, you know, some folks trying to hack us. Uh, we, um, you know, had to make some adjustments to the server to kind of deal with people who are trying to hack their location and things like that. And all that was played out. You know, there were people that were unhappy that we were blocking. There were hackers that were unhappy on Reddit that we were blocking their hacking attempts. Mm. um, Hackers are that way. The hackers can be that way. Uh, So all that got echoed kind of through mainstream media. And then the Olympics happened and, you know, it kind of took off. We launched in Brazil kind of right as the Olympics were starting. And then that whole kind of press cycle happened. And it has raised a lot of issues about public space and uh, what it means to mix, you know, this kind of alternate reality experience in public space. The number of users surprised us. So, you know, some of the crowds that showed up at parks and places like that, we, right. you know, had we 
thought that the numbers would be that large, you know, uh, maybe, you know, there are things that, you know, we could have done to try to ameliorate that a little bit, but, um, or take it. And how does it work with people that either like the attention or don't? So you have two different things. You have people like the Holocaust museum saying, Hey, please don't, you know, this isn't that kind of space. And then you have, uh, businesses and other people saying, we'd love to be a Pokestop. We're not. How do you guys handle, uh, both the people that want to get off the grid, if you will. They want to not be a pokey stop, as well as the uh, business interest. I mean, you have a big deal with McDonald's, but I'm sure everyone in their uh, coffee shop mother is uh, trying to knock on your door. Yeah, there was one in my bedroom, just so you know. I don't know why. But <laughs> they, they I appreciate it. Some, there was some <laughs> animal in there that I wrote You know, it's historical <laughs> landmarks, Kara. <laughs> anyway. Um, you have to really go back to the origins of Niantic to, to really, you know, understand where the Pokestops and gems are located. Those were, as I said, many of them came from field trip. Historical markers are one of the data sets that we use to locate these mm-hmm. things. And then uh, for Ingress, we were thinking about, well, how do we expand this set of interesting places that are public, that are visually you know, recognizable, that are safe places for people to, to be at? And so we crowdsourced that. So Ingress players were able to submit their local landmarks that they thought were cool. It could be a statue in the park. It could be an interesting historical home, a museum-type location. Uh, it could be a unique local business. So that data set got created and refined over three years of Ingress. And then a subset of that was used to populate Pokemon Go. But the goal there was to encourage people to visit places in their town or community that are interesting that are culturally interesting they're just kind of fun places to check out uh cool local landmarks uh kind of a hidden gem you know there's a historical plaque about mark twain tucked away in the corner of the park in the community where i live and it's an ingress portal so to kind of lead people into these little Mm -hmm. cool places in the neighborhood and also just walk because my kids just like try to get the numbers in the walking they walked around a hotel room for like a hotel hallways for a long time. And I was like, all right, go right ahead. You can hatch that Pokemon egg. Yeah. Um, so those are the places that populated Ingress and then that were carried over into uh, Pokemon Go. And uh, we have a limited number of commercial sponsors in Ingress. And then uh, in Pokemon Go, we have McDonald's in Japan. And we're, you know, we do have that as a part of the game and we're experimenting with that. Um, it complements the in-app purchase revenue and allows us to not be as aggressive with in-app purchase, for example, by having that and we'll be you know we'll be cautiously exploring that we don't want to have too many commercial locations in the game because the original spirit of it was get out and you know discover these interesting which google maps didn't do didn't the way others did you know MapQuest had a lot of commercial it's true i mean if there's one thing we learned from google it's like go you know go light on Mm -hmm. the and what about in rural areas i mean the game is really popular i played it in San Francisco where I live, but also in, I was just in Miami. There's great locations. But when I go visit my parents who live an hour and a half north of here, it's kind of, you know, a wasteland. And I, I wonder, are you, should there be a way for people to add pokey stops or do something other than uh, buy a million incense or lures? <laughs> Did you try to play where your parents live? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, it wasn't much. I mean, uh, it's interesting because I grew up in this small town out in West Texas and one of the design goals for Ingress and for Pokemon Go is that the games be fun and playable in big, concentrated urban areas like San Francisco, but also in small towns. So we use um, libraries, a lot of churches, museums, churches, murals um, are all valid locations for within Ingress when they were originally submitted. So the goal was for it to be playable in small towns. And I've played in a ton of small towns across the u.s for going to ingress events and also pokemon go so it may not be everywhere but we did try to accommodate for that 
We don't currently accept submissions for new locations. We stopped that about a year ago because we had 15 million submissions and we thought we had pretty reasonable coverage, but our intent is to open that back up to allow submissions of new places. Pokemon Go has penetrated to, you know, I was looking at requests from players to add Pokestops in these far reaches of Brazil, like up Mm -hmm. near the Amazon and looking Mm -hmm. at some of these towns. And there are places where there aren't enough game locations. So we will open that back up. All right, when we get back, we're going to talk more about keeping up player engagement, whether it should be made social, and where mobile gaming goes from here. There's lots of questions for John Hankey, who is the CEO of Niantic, which is the creator of Pokemon Go, one of the most popular games, mobile games, I think, in history right now. We'd like to thank Qualcomm for sponsoring today's episode. We're currently reviewing submissions to the Why Wait Lunch Contest that I've been telling you about. But in the meantime, if you listen to this podcast, you love innovation. You're also going to love the Why Wait Invent-Off by Qualcomm. It's an online documentary series in which two teams are challenged to invent something that uses the Internet of Things to save a life. The teams are given a Qualcomm Snapdragon-powered device and a Dragonboard 410C loaded with advanced processing power, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and GPS. And that Dragonboard is the size of a credit card. Check out qualcomm.com slash inventoff to see what they invented. Thanks, Qualcomm. I'd also like to tell you about Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Peter, who'd you talk to this week? Hey, Kara. Normally, this is the part where I tell you what happened during the podcast, but instead, I have a special guest here who can tell you what happened during the podcast because she was here. Hey, Kara. It's Amina. Miss you so much. We were talking about you for a while, actually. Um, We also talked about Amina's awesome podcast, which is called... Call Your Girlfriend. And how she's become a giant internet star overnight (laughs) and has quit her day job. Allegedly. Some of of this is true. Allegedly. This is cool. We talked about how you got from there to here, how you built a presence for yourself on the internet. Yeah, we talked about how to do networking and a non-gross kind of way, uh, making media for ladies. You would not tell me who your super secret awesome marketing client is. And then you gave us awesome recommendations for other awesome podcasts. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's all available for free. We're going to go. You can find Recode Media on iTunes, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're here with John Hankey, the CEO of Niantic, which created Pokemon Go. And we've been asking him how it's developed and what's been happening. This company started with a game called uh, Ingress and then has moved on. One of our editors at uh, one of our other publications was wondering how how it feels to have a really passion-driven, complex, conceptually sophisticated product like Ingress be massively overshadowed by something, and she said, simpler and fluffier. How does that feel? (laughs) Well, I love Ingress, and we all mm-hmm. have loved it. We've worked on it. The community is amazing. Continue to play and bring more people into the game. We have events around the world monthly for Ingress, so it's going strong. It's wonderful, actually, to see more people appreciate the characteristics of Ingress, which we designed into it and hope people would enjoy, and that's this incentive to get outside and be active and just the the pleasure that comes from that, just from taking a short walk every day, kind of motivated by a game the discovery of interesting places in your city that you didn't know about a park that you didn't know about or you know an interesting historical site in your city that you didn't know about and then the social aspect of it which are they're real social interactions it's going out with your kids and playing together as a family it's going out with your friends and playing as a group or you know uh banding together with an even larger group of people and going out you know in ingress to capture a portal or in pokemon to go compete at a gym so um yeah, I mean, those were all appreciated by the Ingress community. And, you know, I think they're just generally positive things. So we're really gratified to see this. Even but those adorable Pokemon characters seem to win, like all <laughs> over the place, correct? Well, they're helping spread the, you know, yeah. spread this type of game, which is, right. which is good. 
I'm curious on the social aspect, because usually when we talk about social gaming, we're talking about interactions within the game. And most of the social interaction around Pokemon Go is people playing the game and talking to each other while playing the game or running into other people playing the game. The social happens outside the game. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, do you think that's a good thing? Does it need more social in the game? Should, you know, my partner and I go play, we play, but there's nothing we're doing together than we actually happen to be out together and we're both loosely, one of us is trying to make sure our three-year-old isn't running away while we're playing Pokemon. But does there need to be more social interaction in the game? Yeah, I mean, it's different than a normal mobile game in the sense that uh, your chat window can be, you know, you talking to the people that are, you're playing with. And, the, you know, the discovery mechanism for finding other people that are playing the game are looking up at the fountain in the park and seeing the 12 other people that are also playing Pokemon Go there. So a lot of it is just designing a game that people can play socially together and have fun together. So there are cooperative elements to it. In Pokemon Go, for example, you know, you and I, if we're out walking together, we'll see the same Pokemon. And, you know, I'm out, I was out walking the dog with my son yesterday and it's like, oh, there's a Psyduck and we can both go capture it together because we have this shared alternate reality that we're both seeing, you know, through through those devices. So um, we think about social as designing a game that is fun for people to do together in real life. And there's another layer to it in Ingress, and we're just you're just beginning to see elements of it uh, in Pokemon Go today, but you'll see more in the future, where there are game design features that encourage people in groups who may live even in different different cities or maybe even live hundreds or thousands of miles away to cooperate. So in Ingress, the game is about connecting portals with a link from one place to another, and to connect three of them you create a control field. So you can think about just a giant map of the world and you're trying to create these, both two teams are trying to create these control fields. To create those links, you have to have a key from this distant city in the place where you're creating the link from. So it means that I have to know, if I want to create a link from San Francisco to Los Angeles, I have to know somebody in Los Angeles and mm-hmm. arrange to meet them somewhere. Or they, If they're flying up to San Francisco, they may drop off some keys and give them to somebody and they may be transferred because you can't email them. You can only physically transfer these things. So basically the game design means that to be successful, you have to be part of a team. You have to work with people locally and you have to know players in other cities. And then that expands globally. So in Europe, you know, people in Germany and Russia and the UK and Italy um, are all cooperating together to... And this is in Ingress. What about in Pokemon Go? So in Pokemon Go, there's the concept of gems, which you have, there's three teams in Pokemon Go, and the three teams are competing over the gems. And you can actually challenge a gem uh, much more effectively if you come with a group of people. So mm-hmm. a group of people can all simultaneously attack the gem together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you really want to get your team mystic buddies together and you know come and attack cooperatively. What about things like trading or battling your friends directly? Are those things we're likely to see or really aren't part of the spirit of what you have in mind? No, those are um, those are great social activities. And we've said in the past that trading's coming and, you know, player versus player battling is something that we talk a lot about uh, internally. And I think it very much is within the spirit of Pokemon Go. So uh, it's possible you'll see that as well. And what about events around Pokemon Go? You have them around Ingress, but you know, create releasing these legendary Pokemons at big events. Is that speculation or is it something? The events in Ingress have been really the lifeblood of that That's game. That's what I mean, yeah. And we, we do have those. We have them 
two out of three months of every quarter we have events, and we'll usually have one in Asia, one in Europe, and one in the U.S. on a single weekend. It's a 24-hour So like what about Pokemon massive Go? Massive global thing. Because there's spontaneous events, but not... There was a 9,000-person Pokewalk in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah my, that was my introduction to the game. I'd been on vacation for a week. I'd come back. I'd read a little bit about it, but I was trying to stay offline. Someone said, there's a Pokemon pub crawl. I went around and, you know, I was hooked ever since. I'm so what about you all doing, like, releasing these legendary? So there, yeah, there have been big events around the world. Sydney Opera House is a big one. And I think we probably will. That was the original intent. You know, we had this learning from Ingress that they're really fun and they're great ways to energize the community. It's a great way to retain your players over time, keep them interested in the game. We simply haven't done it so far. Well, it's only been two months since launch. And uh, Yeah, hurry up, John. The crowds have been big, so... Um, yeah, we want to make sure that we, if we do put on an event, that you know we can. Uh, can you give an example? Adequately handle the the number of people what who would, would show up. What would that look like? What would that? What example could you give? Well, I mean, I think you could look at an Ingress event as you know as a template, right? For, you know, in general, and in, with Ingress, uh, the two teams in Ingress compete. It lasts over a four hour period. Typically, the area that you're playing in is around three kilometer kind of walk that you're moving through during the day. Uh, when we have an ingress event, people typically come in on Friday night, stay Saturday morning, they're meeting, planning what their strategy for the day with the rest of the team. Then there's four hours of gameplay. And then there's a big event at the end where we announce the winners. And then typically lots of after parties arranged by the teams themselves where people Mm -hmm. continue. It's sort of like a college uh, football weekend, Mm -hmm. but organized around a game. So I think, you know, it'll be a bit different with Pokemon Go. It's a different game, but the idea of having, you know, people coming together, having an event that moves you through an interesting part of the city. So it's part walking tour, part competition, uh, and then having a big get together at the end where we're announcing winners, leaderboards. Typically with an ingress event, there's a kind of fair like setting where people are selling various kinds of swag that they, you know. So to come. Yes, to come. I can't give you an exact date, but I, it's in our future. And on the more immediate horizon, there's there's a couple things coming on the hardware side. One is uh, this attachment. I'm holding one here. It's a very simple attachment that's designed. And the good part is I can keep my phone in my pocket a little bit, which is good. I won't be walking into as many people. But it does seem to like take away a little of the excitement and skill you're just pushing a button when it lights up talk about the thinking behind this attachment so this is a little device it's like a little it. dongle it's bluetooth it looks like a google map drop. it does look a, like a google map drop yeah. um and this is like a 30 dollars bluetooth attachment basically what's the thinking behind that and why why this attachment well i mean from the very beginning for our games they're about uh wanting to encourage people to get outside and see interesting places so it's uh you know, we have mixed feelings about people looking at their screen when we're trying to, you know, lead them out into the park where they can see the beautiful statue and trees and nature. Um, so we're always looking for ways to kind of combine gameplay with either good design on the part of the software on the client or other devices that let you play more of heads up. So you can talk to the people around you. You can take in the amazing sights around you. So uh, maybe at some point in the future, there will be augmented reality glasses, which overlay Pokemon and other you know, things seamlessly into our environment, but those don't exist yet. So we're looking for those interim steps where you can have some heads up gameplay. It's not designed to completely replace playing on your phone. So you want to see those Pokemon, you want to organize them. Uh, You may want to go out and capture them using your phone at times, but there are other times when you may just want to collect some items or maybe even collect some Pokemon as part of a daily walk. Maybe you'll bring back Google Glass somehow, like a reason for it. But, you know, know, everyone always insults Google Glass, including myself, but conceptually and directionally, it it is a correct direction, this heads-up display. 
the device itself wasn't quite right for lots of reasons. It was really early. And it wasn't true augmented reality and people talk about mm -hmm. AR and heads-up displays you know, being different. It was more of a heads-up display. But it is the direction that I think is far more interesting and promising for technology and really for humanity than VR, for mm -hmm. example. Because you know, in a VR situation, you're isolating yourself from everything around you and entering this completely virtual space. AR is designed to add, enhance... The things you do as a human being, uh, being outside, socializing with other people, shopping, playing, having fun, um, AR can make all those things better. And I think uh, when we eventually get there, the technology is significantly more challenging than VR because of the need to register reality and what you're overlaying on it. Uh, people like Magic Leap and Project Tango at Google and Microsoft HoloLens, people are working on solving those problems. Uh, and I think the opportunity there is, is a really big one, not only for gaming, but uh, it will be the next big transformative step in, in technology, I think. So let's finish up by talking about engagement. Uh, obviously, you're in this new series of stories that people aren't. There's only been so many games, and I, my kids have played all of them. The only one that sticks with them is Minecraft, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there was something with vampires. There was um, all the games that Zynga did, the farm Angry bells, birds. Angry Birds. You know, they go up and then they go down. How do you keep it? Like events is one way to keep it up, but how do you? Do you just introduce newer and newer games, or do you? How do you keep a thing like a phenomenon like Pokemon Go? There's it's almost inevitably that you're never gonna. The expectations are going to be too high for you. Talk a little bit about that and what's happened to the user base and how you get new users into. Yeah, the well, game. I mean the type of game that we decided to spend our time building uh, originally with Ingress and now with Pokemon Go, the choice was very deliberate to build something that people in the gaming industry refer to as an MMO, or massively multiplayer online game. This would be a relative to something like a World of Warcraft for PC games. And the distinguishing characteristic of MMOs is that they're as much about the community of players as they are about the content of the game. So a sort of standalone single-player video game is typically about the user consuming content. So screens, characters, level, you progress through it. The game has so much stuff in it. And when you, ultimately you exhaust the stuff and right. you're done with the game and you move on. MMOs, World of Warcraft being a perfect example, 10-year life yeah. span at this point. You know, the communities form uh, in that type of game. They're called guilds. Ingress has the two factions. Pokemon Go has three teams. And once you begin to play together cooperatively with a group of people, it's as much like a you know, a softball game. You might, you know, get together with a group of people after work and go play softball and then you have, you know, food and drinks afterwards. It's, a, it's an excuse to socialize together. You know, softball doesn't you don't stop playing softball, right? Mm -hmm. You don't stop, you know, if like bowling leagues, you know, years ago I would imagine there was a similar driver around that. MMOs have that characteristic of it being about spending time with friends and people that you've met and the old style MMOs, it was virtual. So you were spending time with avatars online. The new version with Ingress and Pokemon Go is you're spending time with real people. It might be your family members, it might be your friends, it might be people that you've befriended through playing the game. But those relationships are real and it's fun. And the game is a catalyst for just hanging out and going places and spending time together. Um, that doesn't get old. So um, it's, you know, so you wouldn't compare it to an Angry Bird, it would be. I wouldn't. It's just a different type of game. You mm -hmm. know, and history would bear that out with, uh, you know, desktop gaming and Ingress was about to hit its four year mark and is bigger than ever. Uh, Pokemon Go will be around for years and years. 
And uh, yes, there's this initial surge of downloads because of this sort of pop culture explosion that's now stabilizing and we're, you know, off to, uh, you know, build the foundation of that game. And bringing new players in, some people say, you know, the longer you've been in, the more benefits you have and you're stronger or various things. How do you onboard a lot of new people in this if they feel like they're behind in the development of it? Well, it's just good game design and game balancing. I think with Pokemon Go, it's actually a pretty nice experience because your initial flow into the game is about capturing Pokemon. And that's it starts out as more of a single-player experience where you're finding Pokemon in your neighborhood and gradually accumulating more and more, and you learn how to uh, level them up and evolve them. And then you get to the team competition through gyms, and uh, that's where level and experience starts to come into play more but the that initial experience you as a new player you can be oblivious to the fact that there may be some super high level players in your neighborhood it's not going to inhibit your ability to have fun it's, it's just sort of happening over there and you get to figure out what's fun about the game and once you get to the point where you want to kind of join in with that you know bigger community then you'll be leveled up enough where um, that's possible without any big issues one of the things about it is it's it's a fairly resource intensive game in a lot of ways one of which is Battery life. I mean, you've you've single-handedly, uh, you know, given a huge boost to the battery pack industry. You see, as you can tell, somebody's playing because they're they're powering up their phone. How high is is making it more less resource intensive on your list? And what's kind of tops on your priority list in terms of how do you make it more appealing for people to stay with the game? Yeah, there's a couple of a uh, couple of questions there. So in terms of uh, resource usage, you know, we do take full advantage of. Com- almost everything that the phone does. So we're using GPS, we're using 3D graphics of the phone, we're using the network to send data back and forth. So, you know, we're really putting a lot of stress on that device. And uh, we do want to make it as power efficient as possible. But yeah, you do see people playing with with external battery packs. We're going to try to continue to tune and optimize that. Uh, One of the ways that we're really interested in doing that is enabling you to do certain things in the game with the screen off. So um, if you want to accumulate kilometers to hatch your eggs or if your kids do you don't necessarily need to have the screen on and running no they need to stare at it and look down at their feet the entire (laughs) time and the apple watch the apple watch (laughs) what do you think i yell as i stand behind (laughs) them stop it (laughs) and uh but yeah the pokemon go plus device which we were talking about earlier is a way to do that so um you can accumulate items in your phone isn't it's not rendering 3d the whole time if you do want to stop and see the pokemon and capture it you can do that but out of a gameplay session of if you're out for 45 minutes or an hour it may be that you only have the screen on and looking at it 15 minutes out of that 45 minutes or an hour instead of the whole time as you are today and then the apple watch which i think is yeah. a fantastic you're, just, in, you're just on stage at the apple event mm-hmm. explain what how people play pokemon using that yeah we announced it last week and uh it functions in a way that's similar to the pokemon go plus it's a companion device and on your watch you can see if you're near a pokestop so if you're walking next to the historical site that's a pokestop it shows up there you can actually flick on the apple watch and they have this really awesome 3d engine on the watch now you can see the graphics you can see the items coming out if you pass near a pokemon alerts on your watch you know it's there you can then take your phone out and capture it in sort of full graphical glory if you want to but to the point i was making earlier a lot of your you know, if you're going out every day and you're like, well, now I'm in the habit, I'm going to do this 40 minute walk every day. And Pokemon is kind of the thing I do to help me motivate me to do that. A lot of that can happen without looking at your phone and without, without kind of consuming yeah, the maximum resources. Yeah, I'm actually, you know, I've played around with the Apple Watch, but there was nothing to keep me wearing it every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the first time when you were on stage, I was like, yeah, I, I can see that. Um, partly because I have my phone out 
constantly playing. So. Yeah, I yeah. offered her my watch because I find it useless. But <laughs> but in any case, <laughs> I mean, a lot of people are. I mean, these kinds of games, people weave them in and out of their you know daily routine. So maybe commuting, you might be waiting on a bus, you might be hopping on a ferry. There are these little moments of downtime, and the game really fits in nicely into those. You can harvest items and look for Pokemon at the various stages of your commute. That's what I do in the mornings, and uh, you know I bike, for example, and yeah, I'm really looking forward to having the new Apple Watch. It looks like a, a really nice piece of hardware. It has water emitting speakers, that's just so you know. Cool. It's pretty it's, damn cool. It is. But yeah, I think it's a great compliment to games like this. So you can play in little, you know, little bitty doses during the day. But if you ever want to go in and look through your Pokedex, Pokedex and see all of your Pokemon and kind of do the more intricate things of the UI, you can always shift over to that if you want to. So last question. Obviously, you've gotten a huge amount of media attention and the media is sort of like... Um it's a mentality that's shorter than a gnat's memory, something like that. They just move on. They like want to declare victory and then disaster. But really, what's next? Do you have to create new games, or can you just keep developing this? What What are you working on? What's your next game? What have you done for us lately, John? Is really my question. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, Pokemon. We've just launched buddies for Pokemon. That's what I did for you very, very recently. Okay. Uh, so you can pick a buddy Pokemon and walk with it and earn candy by walking with your buddy Pokemon. As I said earlier, Pokemon Go is a game that we think will be around for years. We are investing in features that you'll see in some in weeks, some in months down the road. Uh, Some of the things that we touched on earlier possibly would be among those features. So we're definitely, um, a lot of the company is focused on Pokemon Go and will be indefinitely to adding to extending that game uh we Sorry, launched how many people there 60 or about 70 70 full-time Small. people mm-hmm. it's amazing and we've launched the first generation pokemon the pokemon fans out there will know that there are over 700 pokemon total so new waves of pokemon uh to appear in the future and ingress uh we are continuing to also invest in that uh there will be an ingress 2.0 at some point in the future and beyond that i can't say except that our platform uh, has gotten the attention of a lot of people with interesting ideas mm-hmm. uh, for games that they want to build and powder puff girls. I don't would know you want the other games? <laughs> okay. Would you want to do them games. all yourselves or do you see opening up that so that other people that have a great idea can build on top of what you've done? More of the latter. I mean, we will be working closely with these people because the technology is something that we probably know better than anyone else on the server side in terms of how to make it work. But yeah, games are an interesting thing. I mean, you can't sort of corner the market on creativity. So there are a lot of great ideas out there, great teams out there. Our goal is to enable them with our unique real-world technology and the data, but to really let uh, other people with great vision drive those projects forward and add to what we've done, not to just sort of copy the mechanics of Ingress or Pokemon Go, but to take that even further and add new elements to it. And we're hearing some really interesting things from people that have come to us, and I think that there's a lot of room for this genre of games to continue to grow what's the weirdest thing perhaps you might not do (laughs) the weirdest thing that we won't do i don't know what's the weirdest thing i don't know you don't know you don't want to tell me you want to tell me powder puff girls i'm telling you i'm telling you there's so many things angry bird go there probably will not there probably won't be an angry bird (laughs) okay all right well thank you i can say that (laughs) all right thanks so much john hanke thank you so much for coming it's uh, really how do you feel this 
big success like this? How does that? I feel um, sick to your like stomach. Like you do or? after a hard day of uh, you know snowboarding or biking. I mean, you know, we're exhausted but elated. It's uh, been so much fun to see people enjoy the thing that we worked so hard on, and to hear the stories of people getting outside, spending time with their family, going to new places. We, you know, that's very energizing to us. It's been a busy two months, so yeah. we're now happy that we're kind of stabilized and we're able to start being a little more thoughtful about you know the next set of features that we want to build well thank you so much and thank you to ina freed for helping me here she's playing pokemon right now as we speak excellent, I, excellent. I'm, I'm almost to level 29 i have no idea wow. what that means all right and then but my kids will in any case thank you john and thank you for coming in and uh let's see what happens next awesome thank you If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews I've done with benchmark partner Bill Gurley, Quip CEO Brett Taylor, and the star of another popular mobile game, Kim Kardashian, just to name a few. All those interviews and more are at recode.net slash decode. Now that you're done with this, why not try one of our other podcasts? Recode Media with Peter Kafka comes out every Thursday. On Fridays, I host Too Embarrassed to Ask along with Lauren Good of The Verge. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from our events like the Code Conference, Peter Kafka's Code Media, and Jason Del Rey's Code Commerce. Thanks for listening, and thanks also to our sponsors, Casper, Ring.com, and Qualcomm. Also thanks to Digital Media, which distributes this show. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. I'll be back with another great guest. Tune in then.